Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Let's have all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, Brady PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On paper, you'd think this was going to be one hell of a train wreck. But then you listen, and you realize common sense doesn't have a party, an ideology, a stereotype, or a color. Can we be united again? Stick around, and we'll prove it. This is Doc in the Block. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doc in the Block podcast. I'm here with my two awesome co-hosts, the greatest music producer in the history of the world, Big Block Spencer and Veron Haynes, Super Bowl champion, yeah. NFL extraordinaire. And today we have an amazing guest, syndicated talk show host, Rich Valdez. Rich, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up, fellas? Good morning. Man, it's so good to have you on the show. You're an ultimate big timer, and we're going to be very excited to hear about your story today. So let's jump right in. Tell us about uh, how you got started in life and how you became this world-famous talk show host. Oh, boy. Well, you guys are really kind. So my mom and dad are both born in Puerto Rico and uh, ended up in Brooklyn, New York uh, as, as very young adults. And, uh, you know, no TV, poor people. There comes me and a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. And uh, we grew up really, really poor in Brooklyn. Uh, not poor like in the projects. We were like in the really rundown apartment right outside the projects. And, um, you know, I, being the youngest, I probably got the best of it from my family. Uh, got more hand-me-downs. I got more of everything. But you, you stay hungry and you want more in life. And it wasn't until uh, my parents split up. We ended up in Jersey. And it, it was there where I I, uh, I wanted a haircut every week and I couldn't afford it. I wanted the Jordans, but I couldn't have them. So it was like, what do I do? And a lot of my boys decided to hustle. And that, that wasn't for me. I would get my ass beat. So I said, all right, let me figure something else out. And uh, I learned how to cut hair, cutting my boys hair. And it became such a thing. It came, I became so popular for giving haircuts in high school that I ended up going to cosmetology school and opening a barbershop while I was still a senior in high school. And I transferred out of my senior year to uh, run the shop that my brother had loaned me some money for and went to night school to finish high school that same year. And uh, that seemed normal to me. I mean, I look back at it now and I think if my kids were to tell me I'm dropping out or transferring out of day school in my senior year of high school, I'd flip out. I'd lose it. But it seemed normal. My parents were totally on board. They didn't care. It was a, I'm a Gen Xer, you know, so my parents were like, don't get arrested. Don't kill nobody. And those were the rules. So, all right, all good. So we did what we had to do. I learned how to cut hair. I learned a whole lot of things. And uh, had, I had a shop. By the time I was like 16 and a half, almost 17, uh, I had a shop that did about 100 haircuts a day. And this was 1993 or four. And it was uh, it was great. I mean, before I knew, I think I made $50,000 before I turned 17. And I was like, wow, I like this. 
So, you know, I did what everybody does when you make a little money. I went up on a chain. I went up, I bought a new car. I did all sorts of things. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, I did all that stuff. And I, I ended up uh, opening another business. I got into the cell phone game. And it was uh, it was a booming industry at the time, but it was during the time of the dot-com bubble burst, 1999, 2000, Clinton was on his way out. And all of a sudden, people started, especially with tech stocks, people started uh, pulling their money out. And before you knew it, a lot of these cell phones that I'd sold were on a contract with commission. And boom, they started caving in on me. And AT&T and all the rest of these companies that were paying me some big commissions started taking back those commissions. And uh, that got really ugly. So I started to lose my shirt in that business, but I still had my shop. And then I eventually sold my shop and got into uh, the cell phone business, like working corporate for Verizon Wireless as a corporate sales executive. So I spent a couple of years in corporate America, you know, getting the polish on, doing what I did. I went to college at NYU for a little bit, dropped out because they were way too liberal for me. I was, you know, raised Catholic, had, had attended a lot of um, uh, evangelical church, and those opinions really weren't welcomed in the college classroom at NYU. So um, I was kind of an outcast. And during my time as a small business owner, that was when uh, people started to approach me, like political people. And they were like, oh, you know, you're in the business community. You should come to our meeting. I was like, I don't really want to mess with politicians. Like, I'm just trying to make money and I don't want to be involved. But they were very persistent. And I realized it's kind of hand in hand, right? There's there, there's no business without politicians being intermingled and vice versa. Everybody's kind of uh, um, connected at the hip somehow. So I... Um, Got involved with with a couple of local politicians that were nonpartisan for for the most part, but it's Jersey, so everybody was a Democrat, and I noticed uh, most of their policies focused on raising taxes for small business owners like me, and I was like, how is this good for me? <laughs> you know, you're telling me to go vote for your guy, but but your man's is raising taxes on me, <laughs> and I was like, you're saying you're for me, but you're not really for me, and, and I remember always hearing as a kid they would tell me. Uh, Democrats are for the poor, Republicans are for the rich. And I was like, well, I want to be rich. So I think I like those guys. <laughs> so I started rocking with a bunch of Hispanic Republicans and uh, it, it was probably one of the best things I did. I learned more about business. I learned about uh, how, how um, you know, individual responsibility, small government. And uh, little by little, I built more um, connections there and had gone into a different industry because I, I remember doing a, an assignment while I was still in school about uh, Hispanics and college education. And at the time, and it was probably 2001, there was a statistic that I uh, came across in my research that said at the time, 2% of Hispanics completed a, a baccalaureate degree. So they were only getting uh, 2% of Hispanics in America getting a bachelor's degree. And I, I was floored by this. And that changed dramatically later on. But in that time frame, 2001, uh, I was shocked and I was like, man, so not only do I got to do this, I've got to help other people do it. So I went to work in higher ed and th that was my goal to help people l like me to, to learn more in particular about business. And um, I, I enjoyed the industry and I was in the industry for a while. And that was where I um, got approached by the Christie campaign. Chris Christie was running for governor in New Jersey and fast forward like eight years now or six years. And they asked me if uh, I would be um, like a um, informal higher education liaison advisor type of thing. And I said, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to help. Uh, and so I went to a few events and uh, helped out with the campaign a little bit. Nothing really major. And once he was elected, they offered me a position as uh, the director of faith-based affairs in the office of the governor. I um, turned down the position because it just didn't pay enough. I was married. I had two kids. I had a house, a mortgage, a car note, all that stuff. 
but I stayed interested and they liked me for a different job. So they offered me that job. It paid better and it wasn't as high profile, but it was still in the uh, Christie administration. And, and that was cool uh, in so much as government can be cool. Working in government has its own pros and cons. You learn a lot, uh, you know, being in the middle of it. But at the same time, you realize, man, this is one of those things that is very political. Like you say the wrong thing, they're coming at you sideways. You do this, they're coming at you. They're doing all sorts of things. So I learned a lot about what people today call the swamp, the deep state, the administrative state, the shadow government, whatever it was. You, you don't do what they want you to do. They'll come at you. And I don't mean uh, Governor Christie. He was actually kind of... Um, my protection, if you will, the godfather. <laughs> it was really the, the people that were always there, the people that worked in government, irrespective of whoever was in charge. And uh, I realized I don't like government. This is some pretty nasty stuff. So I started talking about the government, writing a column in the Washington Times. I worked for an organization called Project Veritas that uh, spied on people uh, to expose them with government fraud, waste and abuse. And, and that was a lot of fun. I was like in a different city every single week. And uh, before you knew it, that opened up new opportunities to do different things. And to answer your question around the next step was finally on this journey. Uh, my parents got ill and it was a really, really tough time. They didn't get ill at the same time. First, it was my mom and then she passed away and then it was my dad and then he passed away. And I spent uh, I became their caregiver because it didn't work out any other way. And while that happened, I ended up quitting my job and staying with my dad for the last two years of his life full time living off of savings. And once he died, I was depressed and I was like, man, what do I do now? I don't have a job. I'm not in the industry. I don't know if I could jump back into that industry. Do I become a barber again? What What do I do? And a friend of mine was like, you know, you you always love fighting with the talk radio when you hear these shows. Why, why don't you get into talk radio? And I said, uh, I was like, you know what? It's like me telling you, you've always liked football. Why don't you get into the NFL? <laughs> it's it's not that easy. Ryan Verano will tell you that. So, or, you know, or like, you know, the, the doc will tell you, you, you can't just uh, it's be a rapper, be a producer. It's not that easy. So uh, I was like, I don't know how you get into radio, but I was being negative. And he was like, yo, you got a big, big Rolodex. You know, a lot of people you worked in government work it. And I was like, facts, that makes sense. So I did. And before you knew it, I met a guy named Rich Cementa. Then I met somebody named Linda McLaughlin. You guys might know her. And I met a lot of people who were really kind to me. that really did the right thing by me. And I uh, worked for some really big, powerful people that were experts in this business and um, got an opportunity to serve as a substitute host on local radio in New York City, which is a you know number one market in the country. And that was, again, just God, right? That was just my fortune to be in a big market. That's where I grew up. And all of that being said, uh, something happened somewhere where either I showed up at the right time or I did the right thing, one or the other. But they were like, come back. You know, we, we need you again. And can you come back? Sure, I can come back. And I just kept saying yes. I never said no. I had some excellent mentors uh, like the great one, Mark Levin, Curtis Sliwa, uh, John Batchelor. And, and they took an interest in me for whatever reason. And one thing led to the next. I was substituting all over the place, getting some TV hits here and there. And I was like, wow, people are really interested in what I have to say about politics and the news. And uh, before you know it, I was asked to do a substitute gig for about five or six months for a really big host named Jim Bohannon. And uh, lamentably, he passed away. And when he did, uh, the network offered me the job full time. And this was a show that uh, was once the Larry King show. It's a really big show, millions of listeners. Uh, it wasn't something I had to build up. It was Larry King and then Bohannon, now me. In 45 years, this show's only had three hosts, and I'm the third one, uh, a Puerto Rican kid from Brooklyn. So I, I think, you know, uh, I thank God for that, and I thank God for all the people he's put in my way, and that's literally my story. Okay. 
There's so much to unpack there. And it's funny to me, I've really learned doing this show about the big timers that the the information that we're trying to convey to our our listeners and our audience is really true. You know, the people who are successful in this world engage in proper habits. I'm always talking about the fact that I'm rereading uh, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. You know, I'm older and I've got a lot more experience and it's just a different book now that I'm going through it. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was when he said, you know, Adam Smith says in his book, there's very little difference between individual human beings in terms of their mental acuity, their strength, uh, you know, their abilities and things like that. The things that separate one person from another are their habits, the things that they do every day. And so what we're trying to teach people is, you know, honesty, integrity, accountability, hard work, be a good teammate. And, you know, we're really pushing courage. You know, Aristotle said courage is the most important of all the virtues because without it, none of the others is possible. And I want to drill down on a couple of things that happen. A lot of our audience would look at you and say, well, you're just lucky. You were born knowing how to cut hair. You, you had this business acumen that you, you know, you're a highly educated guy, so you could do business. I can't do that. What would you say to these young kids out there who are struggling with, uh, you know, trying to find their way in this world? How did you come across, you know, learning how to cut hair? What made you think you could do a business? You're telling me you didn't even finish your high school degree until you went to night school. The other thing I want to focus in on is your faith. You're a Catholic and we know that uh, people who have strong faiths uh, tend to fare better in this world. And I, that's just a personal observation that I've made in the medical field. When I see people with strong faith, they seem to have the ability to handle things better in such a way that's made me want to dive into it and improve my relationship with God. Why don't you talk about that stuff, your early years? How did you get into cutting hair? Sure. Like yeah. That. Like, uh, kind of like I mentioned, but I'll expound on it because I think it's a really interesting point. If somebody were to ask me, how'd you do that? Uh, and people do all the time. And, and my response to them is, I, I think you can do it too. Uh, it just depends on how hungry you are. A- and for me, the answer was poverty, right? It was parents that cared, but they couldn't do, they, they just couldn't do what I needed them to do. I needed them to buy me what I wanted them to buy me and they couldn't buy it. I wanted to go at the time in Jersey, uh, there wasn't even a good barbershop where you could go and get a really good haircut or a good lineup or anything like that. We had to go back into New York to do that. Uh, and the closest place was, you know, I could take the path train into the village and there was two spots, uh, Astor Place and Ginger Rose. And so I would go there and, and back then a haircut was like, 20 or $25. And we're talking like 30 years ago. So um, it, it was a lot of money and I was saving a lot of money just to get a haircut. And I was like, I can't afford this. <laughs> but I, I watched them and I watched them. I was like, I need to get a pair of those clippers and start experimenting on my friends. And I did. I just, I, I was always very industrious that way. And I think that has a lot to do with um, what today they call neurodivergence. And back then they used to call hyperactivity. And I think somewhere in the middle, they call it ADHD. And my ADHD untreated, still yeah. untreated uh, is, um, is is really the catalyst for a lot of things. It's probably why I'm able to, you know, if somebody asks me one question and I go on a 15 minute answer, right? Good thing I ended up in talk radio because I talk a lot, but th- that's part of why. And so I think th- all of that stuff combined, um, yeah, I think it's a God thing. I think God puts things in your way and prepares your life for you a certain way for you to do what you were meant to do. Um, like if somebody were to tell me, you know, look at Varane, he ended up in the NFL, he's doing his thing. I don't think I could go to the NFL. Even if he told me you could do it, I'd be like, you're bugging. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could handle the workouts. I don't think I could do, you know, or even if Doc said, no, you could be a producer. I was a radio producer. I don't think I could be a music producer because I don't think I have the level of creativity that I need to do that particular job. I think 
Music is an incredible art form. And when, you know, some people sit there and they just, it just comes out. They're like, wow. And they make a beat. And I'm like, how did that come out of your head? Where'd that come from? You know, it, it's it's so amazing to me. So, now, you know, so talented. So, Rich, you, man, kudos. Let me echo what Doc said. Some of the same stuff stuff we we see week in and week out with successful people, hard work, dedication, giving back, faith. But the most important thing that I captured from what you said was you showed up. Yeah, yeah. Could you expand on that? Every time you were at the right place at the right time, yeah. even though you wasn't, you, you as you would say, uh, thinking that you could do it yet, you showed up. Talk to our audience about that. I blame that one on my parents. My parents, uh, again, uh, all, albeit they were poor, they loved me a lot. And and they made me believe that I could do anything I wanted to do. Literally. Like, I really believe that. I, I still believe that. You know, like, sometimes I'm sitting there talking to my kids and I'm like, so, you know, uh, um, and, and I'm like, just whatever, like either discussion or, or coaching or whatever. And I'm like, you know, you whatever you want to do, you could do. And they're like, easy for you to say, because, you know, you had a barbershop when you were 16 or you got appointed by the governor to this position or yeah. whatever. And I think, how did that any of that happen? Like you're so lucky. Yeah, right. It was you're so lucky. It was your head of hair. They really loved it. No, that wasn't it. it I think it, it's exactly what, what Varan just said. I just showed up. And the reason I showed up was because there was always a part of me that was just big on me. I believed in me. I was willing to bet on me. Uh, I didn't always think I could do it, but I, I was willing to take the shot. And and, uh, and I think that has to do with my mother. My mother just gassed me up as a little, I was a little fat kid. And she was like, you're the best looking kid on the planet. I was like, yes, I am. You know, and, and that, that it's amazing what parents will do for you, you know. Uh, and I tried to do the same thing for my children. And I still live there. You know, like uh, I just got nominated for a People's Choice Podcast Award. And uh, at first I was like, I don't understand. I don't Congratulations. Thank you. And I was like, you know, I don't know that. I'm going to win that. But I was like, I'll, I'll take the nomination and run with it. And then last night I was like, we're getting close to the date. I think the ninth is when they start their uh, deliberations for the final. And, uh, and I was like, I got this. I totally got this. <laughs> you know, there's these moments where you look in the mirror and you're like, Oh, you feel yourself. But I think 90% of the time I'm not feeling myself. I don't think I can do it, but I'm like, I'm still going to try. I still got to show up. Like Veron said it. And that's really it. You just got to do it. You, you, if you're getting into a fight, you might get your ass kicked, but you got to be in the fight. You can't just walk away from it because then it's over for you. See, see, something like that, man. Um, this block, man. Something like that. You know, I came from the, from the projects. You know, you know, like I heard you say, you came from the, the apartments right before the projects. Yeah, yeah. It's like the suburbs. I came from the projects, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what, so one thing that my parents instilled in me, man, was getting to know God for myself. Um. How did you like build a faith or, or like what got you in the faith? Was it your parents? Was it uh, an incident that happened or you fell on your ass and you just had to crawl back? What got you in the faith? And so I believe in the faith. Yeah. Well, well it's an interesting story. So yeah, I, I was raised Catholic uh, and we went to church every Sunday, but you know, all I did was act up in church, mess around with my sister and, you know, get in trouble. And my mom's you know, smacking us in the pew. Um, it wasn't really until I was 19, right? And I had already been in business for a couple of years with my barbershop. I was doing well. And I remember um, I had a neighbor, really cute girl, and she always had a bunch of really hot friends at her house. And I was like, oh, that's the connect. So I was always hollering at her, always. And and one day she was like, hey, you, you want to hang out this weekend? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she told me, she was like, okay. I was like, are there going to be a lot of girls? And she was like, there's a lot of girls. And I was like, okay, cool. Where, where are we at? She was like, Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. And I was like, who hangs out on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock? <laughs> and she was like, well, it's on 51st Street and Candy Boulevard. And I was like, 
I don't know anything around there. But I was like, all right, I- I'll go. And I show up and, you know, and I'm like, it's a church. And I saw her outside and she was like, oh, it's here. And I was like, we're hanging out in a church? I don't understand. And she's like, we're going to church. It's really good. The pastor's really funny. You're going to love it. And I was like, huh? Mm-hmm. So I went in. And interestingly enough, I was like, oh, this is one of those uh, Pentecostal church, evangelical church. And I was like, these are the guys that are always after your money. They're always trying to, you know, get, get at you. And, you know, it's like, God loves you. Give me cash. And I said, man, what did I get myself into here? So I'm sitting there skeptically. And uh, the preacher starts, he comes out and he says, today we're going to preach about tithing because giving is an important part of your faith. And I said, unbelievable. <laughs> I was right. So he gives this amazing sermon, though, and and the whole way through, I'm like, that makes sense. Well, that makes sense, too. That makes sense. And again, I was a barber and I got a lot of tips and I probably had like 200 bucks or 100 bucks in my pocket. And it came time for the offering. And I was like, all right. So I, it was something he said in there, he quoted from Malachi and he said, you know, whatever seed you sow will be multiplied tenfold. And I said, let's put God to the test, because that's how he phrased it. He said, you know, you want to challenge God, challenge him on this. So in my head, I said, okay, I'll do that. I don't believe the preacher, but I believe God. And I put the money in there and no lie. And that's yep, to the T. It was like $1,100 that I, that I got out of nowhere the following week. And I was like, this church thing is better than Atlantic City. So I did it again. And I did it again. And I got to tell you, every single week I put that money in there and every single week it came back tenfold. And that was, that, there's, no, a, there's a lot that goes into that too. You know, it's, we, we talked to the, our viewers and our listeners about, uh, you know, the people that you surround yourself, that's going to mm-hmm. be your opportunity in this life because so much of life is relationships. And, you know, step one, you got to have the courage to show up, you know, you go and you do what you think you want to do. And sometimes you succeed and sometimes you fail. But what happens is you get exposed to another opportunity and another person and if you are a giving type of a person and you establish relationships, eventually you get uh, you get aligned with people that can help you on some level spiritually, you know, people that can be a good employee to you, a good a good employer, people that can be a good friend and people that can offer you opportunities. And it's this willingness to go out and engage in the world that really uh, sends you down your path. I mean, just listening to you tell your story, yeah. I know you didn't go to bed at night going, God, I want to have my life fo- unfold like this, right? right? It just un- it just happened one thing after another, nothing necessarily in line with the thing before, but opportunities mm-hmm. presented themselves. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, and, and that's really it. I mean, you know, I, I've tried to choreograph my life a bunch of times and you know, there's an old joke that says, you know, um, you want to make God laugh, tell him you got plans, right? So, you know, if I had it my way, I was going to be making films Life in is Hollywood. What happens when you're making your plans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you, you know, uh, it was uh, every plan I had was kind of like whatever. But there were also things that I always did want to do. And, and uh, you know, growing mature as, as a Christian, you, you, you learn, you read the Bible. And, and there's things that you learn and then you understand better. And one of the verses I read was, you know, that. The, the Lord will give you the the desires of your heart. And when I first read that, I thought, wow, that's great. Whatever I desire, he's going to give me. And then, you know, I, I learned to understand that as that, no, God will give you. He will implant those desires into your heart. So there were things that I desired to do that I was l- then later able to do. And and I think that's an important thing um, um, when talking about faith. You know, like I never really had an interest in um, uh, being the uh, co-founder of a charter school, but I got to become one. 
And, and the only way I was able to do that was because I had an interest in education and in helping people in, you know, in, in challenging situations. And one day, the former commissioner of uh, education for the state of New Jersey, Brett Chundler, he used to be mayor of Jersey City as well. He tells me, hey, I'm thinking of um, putting together a group of people to start a charter school. I want you to be part of it. And I was like, why? <laughs> why me? <laughs> you know, but uh, but it, it was just an amazing opportunity. And God bless you. And here we are. I think it's now 10 years later. And, you know, we've had graduates, we've got over a thousand students and three buildings, and it, it's really a success story. And so, you know, I didn't go to sleep asking God to, uh, you know, make my life unfold this way, but I definitely go to sleep thanking God for how my life's unfolding. Yeah, that's huge. What, it, what would you tell uh, young kids about staying on the straight and narrow path? You know, when you're young, there's obviously a lot of negative influences out there, gangs and, and other sorts of things. What kept you on track? You know, again, I was the youngest. I had a bunch of big brothers and, you know, they knew the streets. My brother Joe got stabbed. He actually died and then came back to life. They revived him in the back of an ambulance. And, um, you know, so I saw a lot of that. And I was like, that street stuff isn't for me. And I had my parents were very loving. They figured out how to raise kids by the time they got to me. Right. So, you know, less mistakes made on the little one. And and my brother Louis once told me, you know, did one of those firm talking to's, looked at me, smacked me in the face and was like, listen, you don't try it. You'll never miss it. Anything. And I was like, wow, okay. And I've taught that to my children and to anybody else. Don't try it. You'll never miss it. And it, 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 for me, it, it worked in my brain. It wasn't like, um, don't do this or don't do that. It was me making a choice to not become addicted to anything that I may, you know, lose control on. And so, I, you know, there's a whole lot of things I've never tried. <laughs> and there's a bunch of things I have tried. But um, thank God addictions aren't my thing. Other than food. I was addicted to food for a long time, up until like a, a couple of years ago. The doctor scared the crap out of me. So I've had to lose some weight. But outside of that, that that's part of how I stayed on the straight and narrow. And, and I just, I, I had sense. I, I, no, no credit to me. Uh, again, I think it just had to do with having older siblings. Uh, I knew that somebody was going to beat me down if they caught me doing the wrong thing. And that was enough. My dad was an extraordinarily tough guy. He barely talked. And he talked like Marlon Brando in The Godfather. You know, he talks like this. That, that whispery <laughs> sound. He, he, was, he was talking like that or yelling. Yeah. And he was a big dude. And I was just like, no, nah, I'm not messing with him. So that really was it. I think it's family. You know, family, the backbone of family, your mom and your dad and, and your brothers and sisters just being like, hey don't do that. That's a big thing. For, for me, it was a big thing. And then as a young man going to church and getting involved in, in my faith walk early in life, uh, that definitely informed how I lived as a young adult. I was married by 22, had two kids by 26. And, uh, you know, that, that's how life went for me. So that that was it. I got divorced at 33. And that's when all hell broke loose. I felt like I was 20 again. So, so it, it, by those numbers, if we're counting in dog years, I'm like 30 now. Yeah. <laughs> Rich, so, you know, success comes before work only in the dictionary. And you have embodied all that at an early age and you got that in your mind young, which is which a lot of us don't get. Talk to me about some adversity, right? Because when adversity hits, right, you could do one or two things. You could either scare you away, go hide from it or learn from it. And then make a difference the next time. Talk to me about some adversities that came up in your life and how did you handle it? Yeah, I can come up with a couple. I mean, first, it was like, again, um, being broke and not having the clothes you wanted, not having the haircut you wanted, not having anything you wanted. You, you had to, I had to figure out how am I going to get those things? And and beyond that. All right. So now I, I figure out how to do it. I have this business that I've created in my house. I was doing lots of haircuts. My dad was 
like, you can't be here with all these people. I had my living room was a waiting room. The bathroom was the barbershop. It was a mess. But that's what it was. And my brother said, you've got something here. And he helped me out with some money that he loaned me. And and there was a guy going out of business. And we took over a salon, took over the lease. I didn't even have my, my haircutting permit yet. I was still in school. But we were breaking all the rules and, and making as much cash as we could. Uh, but, so those were some of the adversities that we had. It was like, you know, when, when that happened, I remember the, the police <clears throat> raided the police. And they thought it was like a drug spot or where they're like, oh, look at this young guy here with all his friends. And I remember asking the cops, they, they you know, pulled up on the sidewalk all crazy. And and I, I, I was like, um, what's going on? And he was like, uh, well, you got all these people outside hanging out, smoking cigarettes. And I was like, let me ask you a question. If these guys were smoking cigarettes, but wearing a suit and holding a briefcase, would you say they were waiting for a haircut or would you say they're hanging out? And he didn't have much to say to me after that. And he was kind of mad that I was young, but I was schooling him. So they came back and they came back harder. <clears throat> and when I was at school, school was from nine to three and I would cut hair from three o'clock and, and beyond. Uh, they padlocked the door to the barbershop. And uh, I remember I went to the police department. I was like, oh, what's going on? They're like, oh, yeah, the city. And again, this is a very small town. Uh, the city health department shut it down because you had unlicensed barbers in, in the place. And I was like, well, First of all, that's not your jurisdiction. It's like the State Board of Cosmetology, not the local police department, number one. Uh, and number two, <clears throat> these people are in school and they have a permit to cut hair because you can cut hair after you've done 600 hours. Uh, and they got mad at me for knowing the rules, too. So they took the padlock off. But I realized this was going they were going to give me a hard way to go. So I ended up moving my shop to the next town over the next municipality, which was just a few blocks away. Uh, and it worked out better for me. But I, I realized, you know, sometimes you have it's fight or flight, right? And in that one, it was flight. I wasn't going to beat City Hall. There were politicians, ex-mayors, ex-police chiefs. All of them lived literally in the houses next to the shop. They didn't like that type of energy there. And as, a, as an adult today, I probably would have never put the shop there to begin with. Or I would have gotten their buy-in first after going to a few fundraisers and been, hey, listen, I'm thinking of putting a shop in your neighborhood and, you know, getting them to help me rather than, you know, show it up and be like, hey, we're here with my boys. So, you know, uh, you learn as you go. I mean, that's really that's really kind of the sad reality of life. But, you know, people say, me included, like, I don't like politics. I don't want to be involved in politics. But life is politics. You know, if you're with your family and you're deciding what movie you're going to go see, that is politics. You got to be able to convince people of the values or the virtues of what your position is. And, you know, you got to be able to have conversations about these things and just understanding that, um, you don't get your way in this world by just, uh, you know, stomping your feet and things like that. You have to work with other people. And that's a lesson that I've learned a lot of times in my life, too. It's we call it avoiding the feel good behavior. You know what I mean? You get in a conflict with somebody and you want to say something, you know, I'm going to tell them off and it feels good for about five minutes. But then, you know, that person down the road can make your life miserable. And it's not really a good way to solve things, kind of being able to you know, not engage like that when you're angry, you know, you want to think through things and you want to show respect to other people. Because even if you feel like you're a hundred percent in the right and the other person's a hundred percent in the wrong, if you start disrespecting people, you're not going to get your way in the end. Yeah. And you know, that's a lesson I'm learning now as a parent. I've always tried to do that with my children, but every now and again, I lose my stack. And, and instead of, it's not a feel good moment for me, it's a feel horrible moment. Cause after you yell at your kids and you show them, you know, the worst side of you, yeah. then you're like, damn, I feel horrible. You know, like my kid didn't deserve all of that. So, you know, that kind of cuts both ways, both. You might feel good in the moment if it's somebody you don't like or didn't like in that moment, or you might feel terrible if it's somebody that you love. 
You know, the other thing I always try to, one of the things we talk about with big timers is, you know, if you hear Block's story, you know, I love Block's story. You know, he'll say, I, I didn't, I didn't have my first bed by myself until I was 17 years old in prison. And now he's got three Grammys, you know. He's How many beds you got? Famous music producers around. I bet you got a bunch. Yeah, I exactly. got a lot of rooms. Yeah, I got a lot yeah, of rooms. yeah, exactly. He's got a fish <laughs> tank that's bigger than my house. And then, uh, you know, you got Varon. You listen to Varon's story. He wasn't even, you know, starting. He wasn't even getting playing time in, in college uh, when he was at Georgia. And I uh, started off at a small school, kept working hard, got his opportunity, and bam, he put in the work. And the second he got the opportunity, the coaches are like, where the heck did you come from? Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of that being having the ability to put the effort in, put the work in, uh, you know, stay focused on your goal and then just wait for your opportunity, you know, and it's going to come. And that's the kind of thing I, I look at when I look at my own life. What, what was my skill? Like, what is it that allowed me to succeed? And I, I think of two things. I had a father to tell me not to quit and that it was going to be okay. You know, he used to pick me up, just keep your head down. I know it doesn't seem like it, but keep moving forward and success will come. And then the second thing I have is I don't quit. You know, I just have the ability not to quit. And um, I think I'm very average in everything. You know what I mean? I was an average athlete, average, uh, you know, academically and all this kind of stuff. But when I focused on what I wanted and I put everything I had into it, I was able to outwork other people. And that's what allowed me to succeed. What are your thoughts on that? What is your super? You know, I just gave a similar talk just like that one to one of my kids. And I was saying the same thing. I was like, and I was a little, wasn't as generous as you are. I was saying, you know, when it comes to being on time, I suck. When it comes to my diet, I suck. I was like, you know, I'm not an extraordinarily tall guy. Uh, you know, I have some intelligence, but I'm not extraordinarily smart. And, and I said, you know, th yep. there's only one thing I know how to do pretty good and it's talk. And what I realized is you've got to use whatever you've got, whatever that one thing is that you might have and run with that thing because mm -hmm. that's your ticket. Right. So for me, I think it was my ability to communicate was, was, uh, was something that works and with it comes along. Uh, people have told me, you know, people feel comfortable around me. Great. Super. So, you know, uh, anything that involves me being able to relate to people and, and to communicate with people. Uh, I'm game and and I'm I'm ready, willing, and able to do it. Uh, but you've got to learn about that. And something I learned when I was a corporate sales executive for a little while, Fortune 10 company, and I remember they were constantly talking about let's um let's strengthen some of your weaknesses. And, and I just I could never get my head around that that they would take people who were underperforming in certain areas, not meeting sales quotas, whatever it was, and and they would say we're going to work on that. And I would think why would you work on the guy? If he's good at that, why don't you make him do a lot of that, what he's good at, instead of trying to build him into, you know, the guy's got weak calves. All right, let him build his calves when he can. He's got these huge guns, you know, work, let him do something like this. You know, I, I just, it never yeah. made sense to me. And then as I grew older, I I, I met people and read other books and uh, people who embraced the opposite philosophy, where they were saying, no, 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 work in your strengths, focus on your strengths. And... um I think it was um, Patrick Lencioni's book, First Break All the Rules, where I was like, oh, wow, I love that. First Break All the Rules. And and it was it was great. Or oh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, another great book that I, I thought, man, that makes sense to me. You know, these dysfunctions they're talking about to me are where I function all the time <laughs> as a dysfunctional person. And it made all the sense in the world to me to always do what you're good at and don't do a whole lot of what you're bad at. So another thing that we talk about is leadership, right? Good qualities of these characteristics show up in leaders, right? So 
one that uh, has really resonated with me throughout my career is I don't ask anybody to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. Right. So if I'm not going to ro roll my sleeve up, I don't I don't I don't I don't ask you to uh, upon that job. Another thing is I treat everybody from the janitor yeah. to the yeah. CEO or the owner of the team equally right across the board. I'm not I'm not big timing anybody about that. And 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 those are some stuff that I think great qualities that leaders have. What about you? What are some of the leadership um, qualities that kids need to have and resonate with in their bag? You know, I remember learning about leadership in, in college and and the, the differences, right? They were talking about managers versus leaders. And, and one of the big takeaways that I, I took from it was that leadership truly is a, uh, uh, a function of servanthood. You, you really have to serve to lead. And it's kind of like what you were saying. You got to be willing to do what you're asking of others. And, 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 and that was something that really resonated with me. And, and I took it similar, but different for me. It was, um, you, you, you must know this stuff before you can lead somebody on this stuff. And I remember being a, a manager in a uh, communications office that had some uh, college admissions recruiters and, and, you know, they, they were, and I was new and part of my job was to fire them all and hire new ones. And I didn't want to fire them all because I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. So I wanted to work with some of them. And I remember trying to coach them and, and they were really standoffish. They were really like, who is this guy? What do you know? You know, and like making it easier for me to fire them. And I wanted them to make it harder for me. <laughs> and I remember, you know, they were like, you used to do this somewhere else, but you don't know how it works here. So, you know, I had a flex on him for a second and I, and I showed him how, what I did and how I did it there and here. And you could do it anywhere if you do these things the right way. And and I earned a lot of respect from these people. And that moment taught me the only way you can earn that respect is if you can do stuff. You know, you can't go in there and be like, no, no, see, here's how you cut hair. And you, you can't tell somebody to cut hair unless you know how to cut hair. You can't school somebody on anything unless you know how to do it. So it, it goes back to what you were saying. You got to be willing to... um to, to do what you're asking of them, you got to be willing to do it, but you got to know how to do it and, and be good at it and confident in it. So uh, it, with that respect, I think you, in in being a leader, you, you have to, you got to be able to walk the walk before you talk the talk. And this is, this is what we call leading by example. You know, we're always telling our big timers that if something is a saying, that it's usually a saying for a reason. You know, there's a reason why people say the early bird gets the worm is because over time, the history of the human race has been, the early bird actually gets the <laughs> right. worm, you know, the, the other th lesson I've kind of learned, we're just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying about focus on your strengths is find out what you love to do, find out what your passion is and then do it. Because once you find that nobody's going to be able to outwork you because you're never going to be out, you're, you're never going to be at work. You know what I mean? For me, I was so fortunate medicine and, and being a doctor, it was my passion. And, and so I was able to pour everything into it because I loved it. And I think that's a real important thing for big timers to do is to find find what their passion is and really pour themselves into it because then nobody's going to be able to outwork you. And we all know success in anything follows the hard work and the time that you put in. Now, another big thing, Rich, I got to ask you, you lost your parents. How, how did you deal with that? And what advice would you give to our our listeners out there who've lost parents and they're they're dealing with that struggle now? Because that's a really really tough situation. It's still very tough, bro. I become a little kid when I think about this stuff. I was 39 when my dad died and my mom died uh, seven years before that, right right when I got divorced. It was really like a bad week 
because it, it literally happened that way. My yeah. wife was like, it's over. And next thing you know, my mother was really ill. And shortly after, she, she wasn't breathing. And I was with both my parents holding their hands while they died. And that was very traumatic in and of itself. But I didn't want them to be alone. And nobody else was willing to to do to play that role. And I look back now, and it, it's not, I'm not faulting any of my siblings. It's kind of, you know, going back to the faith component, I, I think God just chose me probably because he knew I would be able to handle it, even though I could tell you right now, I don't think I could handle it. Even then, I didn't think I could handle it then. I don't know how I got through those moments. Um, but lo- losing your parents is, for me, was remarkably hard. It's still hard. Um, my mom died. I s- literally feel like the sun doesn't shine as bright as it used to. My dad gone. I feel like I'm walking in the dark half the time. I got nobody. That was my OG. I could always ask him. He knew everything I didn't know. My dad didn't talk. He fought. You know, it was like, no, no, while you're trying to talk yourself out of this, calm down, take it easy. It's not worth it. My dad had thrown three punches. He was a real tough guy. And and, and that was the balance that, you know, uh, I needed in life because I'm a people person. He wasn't a people person. He was a G. So, you know, you, you need that balance because you don't want to get taken for a ride in this life. And and um, how you deal with it. For me, I, I, I buried myself in work and you know, I've gone head in uh, to, to, to try to make it in talk radio and and thank God I'm, I've, I've achieved some success. Um, but that was it for me. I, I found a focal point. Maybe it's the ADHD and my hyper focus. I, I found something to not sit there and and uh, constantly beat myself up about coulda, shoulda, woulda. Now, the flip side of that is faith. Faith is a huge thing, right? And if, if, if you believe in, in, in the Lord and the Savior, Jesus Christ, and that that, that that is your redemption, that is your life, that's how we move forward, then I believe my parents are in a way better place. And I believe that, you know, God's got me and I'm going to be okay. So, you know, the, the, that the safety net of faith and, and that ability to operate that way is incredibly reassuring so that you can focus on other things, not just to run away from a problem, but really to, to move forward in life. And, and to do so kind of clear-mindedly, soberly, uh, and earnestly. And, and I think that's that's what it was for me. But it's r- extraordinarily hard. And I'll add this. For, for a short while, about two years, um, I served as a police chaplain for the city of Newark Police Department in Newark, New Jersey. And they only really used us when there were homicides. And lamentably, there's a lot of homicides in Newark. And, and I would meet with a lot of families and people. And that was the point was to be this this peer chaplain that could understand things and and relate to people. And I, I part of what I learned was grieving comes in stages and 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 these five stages of grieving and whatnot they, they can last a really long time or they can go pretty quickly. And you, you're going to move from different parts of it. You know whether you're negotiating or you're angry with God, you're angry at life, you're you you get to this point of despair. And eventually you get to the end and, and hopefully you have peace. You have at least closure and you realize they are dead. They're not here. It is over. It's time to move forward. And whatever your faith or your outlook in life, uh, your worldview uh, dictates to you, great. I hope that you have a faith like I do, a Christian faith, which is going to give you joy and peace about your loved ones moving on. But whatever it is, you've got to move beyond that. And you can get stuck there. And I know some people who have gotten stuck there and I've seen them. And if you get stuck in one of those stages, you never really complete the process and you're in limbo forever. So my advice to anybody who's lost their parents, keep moving, right? Keep moving in the direction, uh, learn, go to therapy, find a counselor, find a chaplain, find a priest or a pastor or a preacher, find a, you know, somebody who can help you that has some training. I took some training at, at a seminary to, to do this particular work. 
but you, you need to, I think, go to somebody who can really help you along that process uh, or understand it yourself. Uh, but sometimes it's difficult to remain objective when it's you and it's your parents and it's your pain and someone else can kind of just offer that helping hand. But uh, don't do it alone. Going it alone probably isn't the best way to do it. And that's a good lesson for our big timers out there. There's power in community. And that's why you should always mm-hmm. strive to, to find a community of like-minded people that have similar values, uh, you know, engaging in the, the virtues. You know, I have uh, uh, Bill Bennett's Book of Virtues uh, in my office, and I, I, I thumb through it every day, and I want to see the words, you know, honesty, integrity, and courage, all these things. And I like to have them on my mind because it helps me deal with things. And I keep feeling like I'm older, I'm mature, I have experience. And so when I'm going to face uh, tough problems, I'm not going to have the negative emotions that go along with them because I have this brain that's telling me it's going to be okay. And you know what? It doesn't right. work. I still, <laughs> still feel human. the same things I felt. When I, say. I still feel empty inside. I feel depressed. I feel, you know, doubt creep into my mind. But the one thing that has really made an enormous difference in my life is having a relationship with Jesus Christ and faith in God. And I can, when I'm really feeling it, uh, and I have some reasons recently that I've been feeling it. I wake up and I just say, God, give me the strength to soldier on, help me with peace and show me what to do next. And he always does. I mean, it Amen. just really is amazing how just when I you know, feel things are not going my way, I just keep soldiering on one foot in front of the other. And then it happens. Uh, you know, you, listening to your life story, it's so amazing. I, we're going to have to do this one day, put all of our big timers together in little clips because mm-hmm. it's the same th- theme with everybody. Hard work, courage, uh, you know, showing up, faith, uh, not quitting, all these different things. It's, it's universal to success in life. And I think people who are listening to our show are really going to have the tools that they need to be successful in life. And I just want to thank you so much for being a part of the show today, Rich. You are a true big timer. We could do this all day. We're definitely going to have you back on again. I'm glad that uh, you're friends with Linda because I know we got a good connection with you. Um, where can our audience find you on social media and all that? Yeah, for sure. You can check out the website, richvaldez.com. You can learn about my show. You could Google it. Um, Rich Valdez America at Night is the show we're on at live 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern on 300 radio stations across America. And I'd love to have somebody give us a call. I got a cool phone number. It's 833-4-VALDEZ. And that's Valdez with an S if anybody wants to call and have a live conversation with all sorts of people from all over the country on every topic, whatever's hot for the day. Uh, I, I'd love to have you. It's a real opportunity that I have every day. And I'd like to share it with your audience. Awesome. Rich, you are so a much. certified big timer. Okay. Yep. All right, everybody. Have a great weekend. Follow us Thank on you Big guys. Timers. Uh, Thank you, guys. <laughs> Bigtimers.com. Yeah. Follow us on Bigtimers.com, DocintheBlock.com. Don't forget, we got a huge event coming up on September the 17th at the Foundry in Atlanta. We're going to have a ton of our Big Timers there. We're going to have food, drink, and the rest of it. It's going to be an amazing time. So I want to see everybody out there. Everybody have an awesome weekend. We'll see you next time. Peace.